0: This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain.
1: Well, good afternoon, everyone. I trust you're having a great day. Um, Claudette, I noticed that the little bit of rain that we've had over the last hour or so has a certain consistency to it. Oh, are you saying... I am serious. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yes, I'm no. saying it. I no, just said not. it. Consistency as in the S as word? In, as in the S word. Wow. It had a certain <laughs> weight. <laughs> yep. Okay. And when it hit the windshield, you could see the little... Oh. Yeah. I didn't know yep. that. Okay. October...
2: Fourth. Yeah, but we're supposed to be in the double digits tomorrow, so tomorrow
1: will redeem itself. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I trust you. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, it's just another reminder. I was thinking, yes, hmm, is it too early to put the winter tires on the curb? Never or, too early. You know. Uh, well, I guess it is too. There are times when
2: it is too early, like compl- right at the start of summer. But <laughs> I find as soon as we have the S word, that's when all of the bu- businesses become inundated with everybody trying to get them on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. Uh, you know, usually... You you know most people myself included I have been guilty of this uh, it's not until the snow is down you're like well I can't get around <laughs> <laughs> then I'll go yes. I maybe should put those uh, winter tires on the car um, and when I say winter car tires I mean just winter tires I don't mean the studded stuff no uh, I have been known to drive winter tires right through the summer months <laughs> I think a lot of us have been known for that yeah um, but again, not the studded ones. I, I said that one time on the air, and oh my goodness, the phones lit up, said, you know, how come you didn't get fined? No, no, I didn't say they were studded, because they weren't. No. They were just winter tires. So that's my own blind lookout. That's my own. I think a lot of people, you know, it's just in the back of the mind,
2: unless you come across, you know, like one of those conditions where you find yourself getting stuck, and then you realize, oh no, I still got my all-seasons on. Uh,
1: to winter tire or not to winter tire that is the question and i know there's lots of people who say you know what my all seasons are fine i just go to the grocery store in the summer in the winter months i'm not going any great distance but others say you know what you really can't get around without them so anyway that's a conversation for another day (laughs) because I'm not ready for it I got to be honest with you we're not either Um, well uh, this news came down today the visitor room at Her Majesty's Penitentiary has been closed after mold was found in the facility well what does that mean for inmates executive director of the John Howard Society Cindy Murphy joins me now well hello cindy hi so we're hearing um that uh, there may be an issue with the visiting room at hmp Uh, what do you know well it's our understanding that there it's being currently investigated
3: for mold issues uh and it's closed to in-person visiting so that means that uh until that's sorted out, and and I don't have no idea when that will happen. I understand there's people in there now investigating it. So depending on what they find, it could really, I guess, determine the amount of time that the visiting room will be closed. And that will have an impact, of course, on everyone in custody when they're not able to see their loved ones face-to-face. We just hope, of course, that it will revert to video uh, visits, whereby they at least have some contact, although not in person. Belinda, this this just speaks to so many problems at Her Majesty's Penitentiary. They just go on and on. They're just one after another. They're not able to be remedied in any significant way. The infrastructure is just beyond its usefulness, as we've known, and government knows, and Department of Justice knows. And so something has got to be done. There's got to be some movement uh, on a new prison. And in the meantime... These issues do have to be remedied because if they announced today that there'll be a new prison, Um, we know we're looking at four or five years out before that will come to fruition. So, how do we deal with, with the current problems that are there? They've got to be addressed. And this is all happening in Light of a huge prison population that's happening right across the province, not only at HMP, they're at capacity, they're at overcapacity. The lockups are full. Um, the other institutions, across the island and in Labrador, are at capacity and overcapacity. So overcrowding issues on top of you know existing infrastructure issues, it's just at a breaking point, and something has got to give. And um, you know, I just I, 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 I we feel somewhat exasperated, I guess. About about the whole thing. You know, we're just talking and talking and talking, and we're not seeing any real movement in terms of a new institution and addressing the ongoing problems
1: that, uh, more specifically, at HMP. You direct, work directly with uh, inmates. Uh, what are they telling you about the the fact that this um, visiting room is temporarily closed?
3: Well, we haven't got much. I think it just happened, so we haven't got a lot of feedback at this point. But, you know, it's concerning. I mean, you know, having, maintaining contact with loved ones, you know, supports, those types of things are so important to the whole process of reintegration. And when you cut people off from those and they're disconnected from their supports, it doesn't bode well in the long run. Uh, it's hard, hard enough when people get released from custody to be able to reintegrate into the community. And without that, without the ongoing support system that they, Need to make that happen, it becomes that much more challenging. So, you know, this is not something we'd like to hear about. Um, I, I just hope, and we haven't heard for sure if this has happened, but we certainly hope that at least the video uh, visiting can go ahead and take place uh, in a meaningful way. Um, but we know with the staff shortages and all the other things that are taking place, the movement within the prison is restricted. Inmates are not out around near as much as they normally would be because there's not enough staff. And so, i suspect um it will have an impact on the video visits as well as it's as it's happening with programs not operating consistently with other community agencies getting in including john howard but others as well um you know visits delayed uh hospital appointments delayed doctor's appointments because of staffing it just goes on and on and um yeah, so we just hope that someone is listening and that they will be looking to um, to do the right things and make, you know take the right steps to start it, move us in a positive direction.
1: What you're describing sounds like a perfect storm. Well it has the potential to be there's no question
3: about that and I think you know some of the information that's come out through the media in the last number of weeks talked about the you know the challenges that staff are the staff are feeling you know over you know working having to work so much because of the staff shortages over time you know the exhaustion and fatigue um, you know and the pressures and the tension that's going to rise as a result when inmates you know are restricted more so than they uh, normally would be uh, within the institution it does have the potential you know to for you know more serious things to happen when there's more tension there's often more violence within the institutions and um, and I suspect if we continue on this path we'll see some of that as well
1: Cindy Murphy I do appreciate your time thank you thanks very much Linda and Cindy Murphy, of course, is the executive director of the John Howard Society. Well, the federal government is going to put $740,000 towards further assessing the feasibility of searching a Winnipeg-area landfill for the remains of two First Nations women. But uh, Manitoba's Crown Indigenous Relations Minister isn't committing to put up the estimated $184 million it will cost uh, for the search. Manitoba's premier-designate, Wab Kinu, promised, the, his NDP government would search the landfill if he came into power. Well, this sort of ties into our next story. A vigil is being held this evening in St. John's to honor and remember missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls and gender diverse people. Well, VOCM's Richard Duggan uh, went down there ahead of this evening's vigil and spoke with some of the organizers. He joins me now. Hello, Richard. Hello, Linda. So uh, tell us, what is this uh, vigil? going to be like this evening?
4: Well, Linda, before I get into that, um, more to the story that you just mentioned. Um, While I was down uh, at that event this afternoon, I spoke with uh, a woman who lost her mom uh, about 20 years ago. She was murdered. And after I had interviewed her, um, I had asked if there's anything else that she'd like to say or add. And the one sentence that she said was, search the landfill. So more to just more to that story and, and just how much that, that the impact of that, not just being felt in Manitoba, but right across the country and uh, here at home as well. Um, but yeah, so I was down at uh, Cochrane Street United Church this afternoon where that vigil is going to be held this evening. And um, a very somber atmosphere, I guess you could describe it. And I, th- I think the best way to describe um, how it was feeling this afternoon uh, again, I interviewed that woman who um, – her mom was killed 20 years ago, and she – that happened when this lady was six. Um, and so I was interviewing her about why she decided to come out uh, or why she will be at the vigil tonight. And as she was speaking, I can remember thinking, you know, this is a very difficult conversation to have. And and thinking about it after, I realized that's why – this event is so important, because these conversations are so difficult. And I think that's sort of the main takeaway that I got from being down there this afternoon is that they're gonna be speaking about things that are not, are not comfortable. Um, they're not conversations that people want to have, but they're conversations that are needed um, when you're talking about missing and, and murdered indigenous women and girls and uh, uh, gender diverse people. Um, and I think that's sort of where my mind went. And uh, this evening, Uh, you know it will be a lot of the same a lot more of those difficult conversations and um, but I I, what the organizers had said to me is that they're trying to make this a safe space for people to come out they want people to feel welcome they want people to be able to come out and and share in that healing uh, that they're hoping will come from this and and help share um, you know uh, help share those stories that again are, are, are so important
1: Well, indeed, incredibly painful, incredibly raw. You said that that young woman lost her mother 20 years ago, but that has to still resonate today like it did when she was just a child, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and, And bringing up all those powerful emotions, especially as you get older and you mature and you start to understand things a little bit better. You see things differently, and it can hit you emotionally in different kinds of ways. So uh, the reason why we're chatting now is because they invited the media down ahead of time because they wanted to allow people to experience all that without worrying about cameras and microphones and, and, and people who are not part of that very special circle yeah. to be intrusive on that.
4: Absolutely and and uh, you hit the nail right on the head and you know when when you have sort of you know camera crews or even with us just you know having a microphone up there it can it can cause people to sort of reserve themselves a little bit and you know they want people to be able to come down there tonight and, and share and you know whatever emotions they're feeling they want people to be able to feel them um, and to uh, be able to f- to feel and hope. hopefully, you know, like I said, um, share in the healing process. And as one of the organizers said down there to me this afternoon, that really goes towards what reconciliation is is all about and uh, going towards not just healing, but but towards the goal of truth and reconciliation as well. And uh, one of the quotes that I believe came from Lisa Fay of the Status of Women Council um, was she said that what, What people are going to hear tonight at this event, that's the truth. That's the truth part of Truth and Reconciliation is hearing those stories and hearing what what families and, and people have gone through.
1: Uh, For sure. And uh, as I think has been pointed out time and time again, uh, there is nothing about truth and reconciliation that's going to be easy. There's nothing about it that's going to be comfortable. Um, It's going to be raw. It's going to be powerful. It's going to be moving. It's going to be empowering. And it's going to be painful.
4: Absolutely. And and that's I could even feel that when I walked in there today, and they're still setting up for this evening, but you walk in, and one of the first things that you see is they have this this tree, and um, the branches on it, pe- people are hanging the little cutouts of the red dresses, and even just to see that, and to see you know, that e- each of those represents... A life that was lost, or even up at the front of the book, they have. They're, tonight, they're going to be reading out the names of, of uh, people who have passed away and, and have been murdered. And just to see that book and to know that each page contains a real life and a real story. Um, I think, I can't remember who it was, but someone mentioned down there to me today that, you know, it. It helps drive it home that this isn't—sometimes if you're disconnected, you think of it as just just a number. You know, there there have been X amount of people that have been murdered over the last 10 years, and it, it really—an event like this shows that, no, this is, this is a real life, this is a real person, and real pain that has been left behind because of that.
1: And what's it like for you covering these kinds of things? You and I have talked about some— Wow, you know you've you've been at some pretty powerfully emotional mm-hmm. uh, news events of late. You know, what's it like for you as a reporter going in there and and you know, picking up that kind of a vibe and talking to people and hearing their stories?
4: Well, as I mentioned earlier i had I had spoke to that woman who lost her mom, and I mentioned how when I was talking to her, i I thought, man, this this is really difficult. And it, it's hard to, you know, like, it's so emotional that you're trying not to get caught up in 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 the emotion for for the position that we're in and you're you you almost don't know how to proceed if that makes sense like this this is such a I mean I'm talking to someone who whose mom was murdered when they were six years old like how do you even go about that conversation and it's very difficult and very eye-opening for me um because going down to an event like that and hearing the raw emotions—not just you know—I'm speaking a lot about that—that that woman with lived experience that I spoke with, but also to speak with the organizers who have been and been a part of many of these events over the course of the years, and to see the emotion that's on their face talking about it, and to see um, the passion which which they present how they're feeling—it's. Uh, It's really eye-opening for me, and I know that having done this and and having taken those pictures today and and done those interviews today, I I know that it's something that I'll be thinking about a lot over the next couple of weeks, and it's really eye-opening. And I think um, I know that uh, this event tonight, while it is closed to media, it is being live-streamed online, and I think that taking in part of that as well I think will be so incredibly powerful because then like I said, it, it's not, it doesn't just become a news story that you read online. When you hear the emotion in their voices, it really becomes, you, you really get a sense of, of, of the person and, and the pain that they're feeling. Um, and I, I think I might've went off on a little bit of a tangent there, but I think that's, that's in general for me, the emotion that I feel when I go down to this or, or, or similar events.
1: Well, thank you very much in your role in uh, helping people share their very important stories. Uh, I really appreciate this today, Richard. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. Um, When we come back after the break, um, public consultations are being held on the uh, Home for Nature Protected Areas Plan for the island. This is News Talk on VOCM.
0: Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM.
1: And we're back. Well, the Wilderness and Ecological Reserves Advisory Council, or WIRAC, is starting a series of public engagement sessions on uh, 10 new proposed protected areas across the province. The first session surrounding the proposed Indian Arm Brook Watershed area. Well, I caught up with Graham Wood, who is uh, busy cooking as we speak. Well, hello, Graham Wood. (laughs) Hi. I understand you're in your kitchen, busy, 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 uh, but I wanted to ask you a little bit about the uh, Wilderness and Ecological Reserve Advisory Council. Uh, I understand that you're looking at 10 new proposed protected areas in the province and you're going to be going to the public on them. What can you tell us about these
5: areas? Well, the, the the areas that attend that we're actually looking at, one of the ones that was not in the actual plan, uh, which is the Home for Nature plan, uh, was Indian Arm Brook that was started over twenty years ago. So that's the first one we're going to tackle. Uh, the uh, public release was today, and uh, we have a uh, we have a virtual session uh, for everybody in the province really on the eighteenth of October. And uh, then uh, on uh, November 1st, we have our public meeting in Lewisport at the Brittany Inns to, uh, to look at Indian Arrow Brook, which is our first one. That one was not in the original plan, as I indicated, but is the one that was on the books long before the Home for Nature was actually published.
1: Tell us a little bit about this area.
5: Well, Indian Arrow Brook really is, uh, takes in the Campton River water system. Uh, It runs really from just uh, south of Camelton, the actual town of Camelton, taking in uh, Camelton River, and then it it expresses it uh, goes up along uh, to Indian Arm Pond, and then it goes in uh, towards Mount Peyton, uh, taking in Indian Arm Brook and uh, Niels Brook. So that's the first area that we're looking at for protection.
1: You say this one uh, predates uh, the plan. Uh, so uh, what makes this area so special?
5: Well, we've had two public meetings on this already uh, over the last 20 years. And uh, what we've uh, wanted to do is tackle that one first as it was on the books and then move on to the other ones that, uh, that we'll be looking at over the next year.
1: And do you expect a big turnout? Do people t- typically come out? I mean, people ve- feel very passionately about the land that they use in Newfoundland and Labrador. Do you get good turnouts?
5: Well, we hope we will get a turnout on November 1st, yeah. Uh, it's at the Brittany Inns in Lewisport at 7 p.m. And, uh, you know, we would like uh, all people, people are interested in protecting ecosystems in Newfoundland uh, to, to be able to attend there. But there will be a virtual sessions for uh, a virtual session on October the eighteenth, which would take place at the Engage NL site. And the Engage NL site is up for people to make comments about protected areas.
1: Graham Wood, I really appreciate your time. Get back to your cooking
5: now. Not a problem, and I look forward to chatting with you again as we move through this process. It's the beginning, so uh, we've got a long way to go to to meet the goals of the. Uh, of the province, uh, the national goals, and uh, certainly the global goals of sustainability and protection of our ecosystems. For certain. Graham Wood, thank you very much. Take care. Thank you.
1: And Graham Wood is co-chair of the Wilderness and Ecological Reserves Advisory Council, or WERAC. They're going to start those public um, engagement sessions. October 18th is the online session and uh, in-person at the Brittany Inns in Lewisport on November the 1st. Well, uh, coming up, we're going to hear more about uh, Metrobus, which is launching a new on-demand service in the capital city's downtown. This is News Talk on VOCM
0: stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you news talk on your VOCM
1: Thanks, Noah and Claudette. Well, Metrobus has introduced a new on-demand service in the metro region. The pilot will provide users with another option between the downtown transit hub on Water Street and Signal Hill, Forest Road, and Kitty Village. The new service, uh, called the first of its kind in St. John's, will allow riders to book a shared ride for trips within the on-demand service zone, the one that I just explained there. Well, General Manager of Metrobus, Judy Powell, joins me now. Good afternoon, Judy Powell. Hi. So tell us a little bit about this new Metrobus on-demand service. Well it's it's an on demand service, it's exactly as it sounds. It's
6: not a fixed route, it's a route that's designed in real time based on demand. So essentially as rides come in, they are communicated to the to the driver and the driver is instructed where to travel, where to pick up customers and where to drop them off. So it it it's a very um dynamic software that allows us to um like I said to provide rides as needed.
1: So what goes behind this uh, do you have um you know one driver one bus on the ready what does the bus look like yes. how does that work So there's two um smaller buses uh on
6: the road and one is there's there's Two basically in the peak times of the day, the a.m. peak, the p.m. peak. There's one uh, mid-afternoon and one uh, until eight o'clock in the evening. Um, so they are servicing the what we call the on-demand zone, uh, which is uh, the Signal, Road, Signal Hill area, the Forest Road area to the downtown um, hub on Water Street.
1: So basically, that downtowny area, and I guess, takes in the uh, Signal Hill campus. It does.
6: It takes in Signal Hill campus, and uh, we are um, happy to partner with uh, Memorial to provide service to their students living at their residence um, on Signal Hill. And they've actually uh, financially contributed to the pilot as well to make this possible. Um, And they also see uh, not only the benefit for their own students, but for the benefit of the city and the region, because this type of service really has potential for, like I said, the lower ridership or lower ridership times of day, where a fixed route is just not suitable.
1: So I have um, an on-demand mobile app on my phone and say, hey, uh, you know what, I really need to get uh, downtown for two o'clock. Uh, I put that in and the bus will be there in a timely manner?
6: Yes, so it will tell you when the bus will arrive. Uh, you can actually, once you place your uh, order for a ride, you can track the bus on the app. Uh, it'll pick you up, and uh, of course, it's a shared ride service, so that you may pick up other people along the way that might have a the same destination or a destination close to yours. So it's a shared ride service, and this this software um, will basically is an algorithm algorithm that um, that you know, looks at all the rides ordered and looks at the most efficient way to service everyone.
1: So um, and there's no set stop. It'll just be a stop that's most convenient for the people who happen to be using it at that particular moment?
6: Exactly. So, you know, most of the stops are what we call virtual stops. There's, a, there's no actual physical stop. So uh, it will tell you where the bus will pick you up. So some, you know, somewhere near your residence or where you're ordering the ride from, it will tell you where to wait and what time the bus will be there.
1: So is this uh, in place now?
6: It is, actually. Um, We have uh, been running it for the past few weeks uh, for the students at Memorial, and I guess that gave us a little bit of time to launch it, to uh, learn, you know, for us, because this is is new to the users, new to Metrobus, so it gave us a few weeks to really, you know, let it settle in, give us some experience with it before we expanded the, the service zone.
1: And, yeah, what's your next plans? I mean, are you planning to expand this beyond uh, this particular area? Well, this is a pilot, so we are monitoring uh, the usage uh Um,
6: you know, as we go along. So this is sort of a a, a phase one. Um, There's a couple of more areas in the city that we're looking at, but of course, we only want to expand as we have capacity. So we want to ensure that, uh, you know, it it stays very feasible and workable for our customers. And, you know, there's other areas uh, of the city that we will be looking at, Um, you know, should the pilot be successful and that the commission and council decides to continue funding for this type of service, we would be looking at other areas of the city and like i said and certainly conducive to um, you know a more regional approach as well for some of the smaller municipalities if if that's something that they would be interested in um, you know so th- this offers more options and more flexibility
1: again yeah, well that what was my next question you know does it offer that flexibility that we could see uh, the way metro bus conducts its business change in the coming months or years um certainly in some areas
6: uh as you know we are experiencing um, record high ridership on on our routes um, so you know certainly in the busy areas uh, you know the fixed route system won't change um you know it, it'll still be a fixed route you know 40 foot bus type of service but certainly in areas that are unserviced or there's you know um, low periods of the day that kind of thing so you know it, it is an option for us to be able to to use our resources more efficiently.
1: What's contributing to that record-high ridership? You know, there there are a number
6: of reasons. Uh, certainly, um, you know, we're seeing um, the impact of, you know, the economy, the price of fuel that always has an, has an impact on transit ridership. As well, you know, with the price of rent, um, people are, are looking, you know, outside the core of the city looking for cheaper rent. And so, you know, they're using transit more to travel into the core area of the city, to the university, to colleges. Um, and as well, you know, we are seeing a lot of usage by uh, people new to the city.
1: And are you hoping that that trend will continue?
6: Yes, uh, certainly we are. It's it's challenging to uh, respond with service changes quickly because, of course, it takes a lot of planning and, um, you know, resources um, to put in place to be able to improve and increase service um, in response to the ridership. So there is a bit of a lag between, you know, that unexpected growth and, and some service enhancements. But we are um, looking at... Uh, um, you know, it's more, I guess, of a one to two year time frame to be able to uh, to respond to that. And, and we're going to be doing some more in-depth uh, studies into our uh, current ridership to help us make those decisions.
1: Judy Powell, really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Oh, well, you're welcome. And Judy Powell, of course, is the general manager of Metrobus. Well, coming up, assessing the health of the marine environment in beautiful Bombay. This is News Talk on VOCM.
0: Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM.
1: Well, a project is underway in Bond Bay to assess the health of the local marine ecosystem by monitoring invasive species like uh, green crab populations and having a look at eelgrass beds. Sydney, Subtle, Sydney Sullivan is the Plastics and Marine Conservation Coordinator with the Atlantic Healthy Oceans Initiative. Well, hello, Sydney. Hi. How are things in beautiful Norris Point? Oh, they're Great. How are you? (laughs) Good, good. So tell me a little bit about this Atlantic Healthy Oceans Initiative in Norris Point.
7: So Atlantic Healthy Oceans Initiative, otherwise known as AHOY, is an environmental nonprofit. So we're based out of Norris Point on the West Coast, but we do work all throughout the Westmoreland region. And we really focus on conserving and protecting our oceans and the coastal communities that are so connected to the ocean. So we do lots of different types of work. Some of the work that we do is uh, marine research. So that's um, part of our new project, our eelgrass project, where we're doing research with ROVs and other, uh, other types of research to uh, assess the health of these important habitats and also assess uh, aquatic invasive species that may live there.
1: So tell us a little bit about eelgrass and what kind of a role it plays in the local uh, marine ecosystem there.
7: Mm-hmm. Eelgrass is a type of seagrass and it's found in beds in coastal areas. And it's really important because it actually acts as a nursery for juvenile fish and other species. It's also acts as a carbon sink. So carbon in the ocean is stored in the sediment and also in the eelgrass itself. And these beds, um, they have been going through some damages due to development, coastal erosion, and climate change, and also due to aquatic invasive species, such as the European green crab.
1: And that green crab really is a, a problem, isn't it?
7: Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about um, that species and what it does. Yeah, so green crab are an invasive species. So that means that they're not naturally found in Newfoundland, but they were introduced by humans. Um, they were first identified in Newfoundland in 2007, and they've since been identified in a lot of bays throughout the south coast and also up through the west coast. So we've been working at confirming identification of green crab in Bombay, as well as getting an idea of what the population is like and the impact that they have.
1: So basically they, um, I guess, outcompete other uh, species in the area? What do they do?
7: Yeah, that's right. So they are a pretty aggressive species, um, and they basically feed on other species such as juvenile fish and other uh, crustaceans, but they have no predators, so their populations are allowed to grow and have no natural control. Uh, They also destroy habitats such as eelgrass, so they can actually rip out the eelgrass from the sediment, so they remove it entirely, and uh, they take over, kind of how nice.
1: <laughs> um, so uh, you're doing a little project now, there, I guess, to uh, determine the health of uh, eel grass beds in the area and, and see what kind of um, impact these green crab are having. How, you, how are you going about doing that? You mentioned uh, drones and the
7: like. How are you, how are you actually assessing this? Yeah, so the project is pretty new. We actually just started this summer. So we're using a couple different uh, assessment techniques that uh, have been used in, if by DFO and other uh, research organizations across the province to ensure that everything can be compared properly in each region. So one way that we're doing this is we have a remotely operated vehicle or an ROV, which is basically like a little robot with a camera that we can put underwater. So we're able to do transects or uh, bring their RV around the eelgrass beds to have visual surveys of them to see the density, how much eelgrass there is, and if there is any damages that have occurred to those environments. We're also doing uh, snorkeling and other types of visual assessment surveys. Uh, we'll also be doing, um, we have deployed green crab traps to see how many green crabs, what the population is, and where they are located, and then when we do collect them, we do uh, we remove them from the environment. So what do you hope to do
1: once uh, you, know, you collect this data and, uh, and get what you're looking for?
7: So all of the data that we'll collect is for baseline data. So there isn't a lot of data recorded about uh, green crab in Bombay. So it, uh, it kind of gives us a baseline of how to compare the environment in the future um, and we'll, all the research that we've collected is actually feeding into EACs, or Ecology Action Sector. They're creating a marine spatial plan in Gros Moran. So all of the research that we have collected will f- uh, feed directly into that spatial plan. And how long is this work expected to continue? Uh, the eelgrass and the environmental damages fund that we received from the Department of Fisheries and Oceans Canada uh, the work will continue until 2026. So you got a lot of work
1: ahead. That's right. <laughs> well, I, uh, Sydney, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so
7: much. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: And Sydney Sullivan is the Plastics and Marine Conservation Coordinator with the Atlantic Healthy Oceans Initiative, uh, and she's in Norris Point. Um, and um, it's You know, it's one of those areas that have seen this uh, huge populations of green crab just proliferating everywhere. They're little. I was going to use a word. (laughs) I was going to use a word that time. But they're a nuisance, a nuisance. They're little. They're not very big, but they just when they get established in an area, they take over. Everything. It's hard to get out and leave a mm-hmm. virtual marine desert behind. Um, anyway, and you can't even eat them. <laughs> so they're useless, like mosquitoes. <laughs> Except for they don't fly. Great. Um, but yeah, real nuisance. And um, so there's some really uh, serious concerns there about the proliferation of these things that came in and bilge water, I guess, off of some boat from somewhere. Anyway, um, so that's what they're doing in Norris Point. I know it's a big problem down in Placentia Bay, for instance. Anyway, and gross. I saw some pictures that somebody was sending us of uh, work they're doing in Placentia Bay trying to get rid of these things, and they sent us pictures like a bucket full of these things. And ugh, I don't know. Like, I <laughs> couldn't take them as a pet. <laughs> not these they're nasty they're really (laughs) aggressive and they're really nasty little things Yes, but we all have family members like that, <laughs> and we don't get rid of them. Got to be
2: something, some sort of a firm. Got to be something. some purpose for these
1: <laughs> little things. Uh, but you know, it's a it's a problem around the world. These invasive species, you know, zebra mussels and all of these things. That uh, because we humans like to travel around the world, and uh, we carry these things on the conveyances that we use, and uh, or intentionally bring them in, and then release them, you know what I'm saying? I think
2: you're not even allowed to bring, now somebody's going to correct me on this, but you know how sometimes people want to bring stuff from a beach home as a kind of a a trinket or something? I don't know if that's allowed, and I could see if it wasn't, because
1: you never know what could be in the sand, for instance. Well, indeed, and I mean, we're an island population Mm -hmm. here in Newfoundland, and in Labrador, it's a whole other type of ecosystem that is relatively, uh, you know, isolated and and, um, free of certain... things. Uh, you know, that we've got snakes, for instance, on the west coast, little garter snakes that came in and hay apparently from Nova Scotia somewhere. We've got raccoons now that have done the same things so or hitching rides on transport trucks and all of these things that we never saw here before. That will
2: change our ecosystem.
1: Completely yeah. changes things. And then we have moose.
2: That blows my mind, yes.
1: Right? They're not native to Newfoundland. I know.
2: Uh, but so they're so intrinsically, They're you know, part of who we are they, now. They certainly are. They are part of who they're we part are Part of now. our DNA, our tourism
1: ads, everything. And our supper plate. Yes. Right? Yeah. Uh, it, ostensibly, that's why they were brought in as, you know, a major um, food source for people, right? Uh, and uh, they have served that purpose, but they've also... Done some tragic Done things, some pretty yeah. uh, big damage. And, of course, there's a, a hunt underway now in uh, Terranova National Park and Grossmore National Park to try and reduce the numbers of moose in those two parks. You know, you don't h- often hear about hunts in national parks, but they've had to do it in those two parks because the numbers need they to like be to down. Gra- uh, browse on the younger mm-hmm. plants and that sort of thing, and they're actually changing the forests in those areas. Isn't so. that interesting? Yeah, so uh, there you go. You got the little green crabs and you got the great big moose. (laughs) (laughs) At least you could, you know.
2: Introduce the two of them. <laughs> <laughs> Start nipping at their toes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Introduce them to each other. Oh, my God. Oh, Claudette, you are... Uh, I know. I'm. Yeah, it's that time of the day. kind spe- of person. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. That is amazing. Well, um, on a more serious note now, Rito Hall is apologizing for granting an Order of Canada appointment to a man who fought for a Nazi unit in the Second World War. Former University of Alberta chancellor and leader of the World Congress of Free Ukrainians, Peter Savarin was added to the order back in 1987. Rideau Hall also examining the awarding of Golden Jubilee and Diamond Jubilee medals to Savarin, and notes uh, his Order of Canada membership uh, terminated when he died back in 2017. But all of these things now being examined in... Um, in light of uh, inviting um, Yaroslav Hunka into the House of Commons, a um, member of the Waffen SS, the so called death squads uh, with the Nazis in World War II. Uh, so, um, also being talked about now is the whether or not um, the federal government should release the Duchesne Report in its re- entirety. That report was ordered by uh, former Prime Minister. Brian Mulroney back in the 1980s to um, look at how many um, former Nazis were allowed into Canada following World War II. Now um, the government has indicated that it's something that they are considering a lot of that report of course redacted for privacy reasons uh, but it is considering as time passes I suppose to release that report just to get a better sense of um what went on there and um some are saying including the conservative party of Canada history is history uh, but um uh, Jewish groups want to see uh, just how bad things were. Uh, it's, a, it's a very serious issue and it's uh, certainly a lot of um, attention has been brought to it uh, thanks to that uh, debacle in the House of Commons just a few weeks ago. Well, this is it now. I know, Claudette, you do not watch baseball but uh tonight right oh yeah it's do or die tonight last (laughs) night's game was not good yeah not good we're talking Uh, toronto blue jays the toronto blue jays um noah follows uh, baseball i don't know if he's listening to me now (laughs) so what do you think of last night's game
8: you know, uh, I thought Gosman was shaky. I think yeah. everybody did, but the Twins always play him tough. And realistically, it's going to be tough to win a baseball game with one run. So it wasn't necessarily his fault now. I do think a lot of the momentum um, shifted for the Twins uh, with uh, with him not executing on that splitter. But uh, you got to get the bats going. That eighth inning, when... Vladimir Guerrero Jr. hits a leadoff double, and he has struggled in the playoffs before. So he comes up with a big hit at a big time, and no outs. Runner on second, you fail to get him across. That cannot happen no. for a team in the playoffs that wants to go far.
1: Even Belt, I couldn't believe it. Belt is usually someone you can rely on. But yeah,
8: he usually rises. That didn't happen. No, it did not, and uh, Bichette, you know, he had a couple uh, couple moments where it looks like, uh, and you see this in some of the big moments with him, he just tries a little bit too hard, didn't need to cash in from uh, from second, he tried to run home earlier in the game and was uh, tagged out at the plate, and you just watched that at bat, it just didn't seem like he had it with Vlad on second, so uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens, um, you know, Barrios has uh, pitched the Twins pretty good, he used to pitch for the Twins, so he's comfortable in that Ballpark, uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, a lot of faith in him on the mound uh, going into it, but the bats are what got to show
1: up. Oh, for sure, for sure. Anyway, I'll be watching it. I know you'll be watching it, uh, and uh, we'll see now if uh, the mighty Jays strike out tonight or if they move on to the next round. Uh, Noah Shepard, thanks. Thank you. And he'll have more on sports and all the news coming up at the top of the hour for uh, the VOCM news package at 5 o'clock. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back tomorrow. Do join us then. And uh, have yourselves a a safe evening. And uh, go Jays!